This podcast series will share personal moments of connection and deeply felt experiences. If anything you hear has a triggering effect, please reach out to someone who can help keep you safe. Or remember, you can phone Lifeline at any time on 13 11 14. Basically, I've said to people, if, everything's, if anything's ever been blown up, flattened or destroyed, I've probably seen and done it. Um, so it can, be, it can be from motor vehicle accidents, it can be from house fires, it could be chemical spills, it could be from storm and tempests and um, weird things, horses stuck in dams and in septic tanks with cows in them and all that sort of stuff. So a wide variety of jobs. And um, that's part of, the, part of the fire brigade that I miss these days is the jobs and the variation of the jobs we went to and the, and the sense of getting things done. Welcome to Lifeline's Holding On To Hope, a podcast in which people who've considered suicide explain how they found joy in life again. As a firefighter, Ross Beckley had to deal with some horrific situations, anything from car accidents to house fires, and it took its toll on his mental health. Today he and his partner Ronnie use his experience to help others, and Ross has realised he no longer needs to wear a badge to save lives. Everyone loves a firefighter. I mean, the policeman, police cop are good some days and bad some other days. Paramedics are, you know, you wouldn't do what they did because, you know, dealing with the stuff that they have to, basically, if we go to an incident, we, you know, whoever's there first, but the paramedics always got to wade through the stuff. Um, and the police are there to do the investigation. The fires can tend to stick back a little bit unless you're on a rescue station. Um, you might be doing that, but generally we're on the outside offering the other services protection while they do their job. Um, but, you know, most, most fires would say I wouldn't be an AMBO for quids, or I wouldn't be a copper for quids. Uh, I joined in 93, and by 1995, I was a deputy captain, which is pretty unusual in the system. Um, yeah, I was also an instructor. I had the opportunity to become an instructor with the fire brigade, so teaching retained recruits how to, to deal with fires in compartments, such as, you know, bedrooms and houses, and as well as breathing apparatus, so looking after their lungs with you know, the right gear. At times it's incredibly rewarding. The camaraderie in, the, in all services, there's a bit of rivalry between police, fire and ambos, but there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a healthy rivalry amongst all services to get the job done. But when it comes to a bad job, everyone just gets in. It's sent down by the AAA operator, so your station's then activated, so you go you tear the call sheet off. Put your truck and off you go. Um, generally, as, an, as a, an officer, you'd be processing um, what's on the paper, um, and often it's more than what's on the paper, or not as bad as what's on the paper. But you're putting things in the process um, while you're travelling down the road with yourself and your crew and your driver. So the people in the back, okay, get breathing apparatus ready, and the drivers, I'll be looking for hydrants and all that sort of stuff. So there's a fair bit of processing on the road and it's a lot and it's a lot done fairly quickly on the road as well. Gotta make a split decision. The station I was attached to in the early days was one of the top three in the state out of the fire brigade with for fatalities. Um, we had a lot of serious motor vehicle accidents in the area, so we were high up in the stats for attending fatalities, which was quite unusual. We had a job that we went to a, a, an automatic fire alarm at a hospital. No big deal. We used to go there all the time. But when we were at the hospital, they said, so then as I said earlier, we were processing it's just an automatic fire alarm, we've got to do that, we've got to reset it. And whilst we're there, then someone ran in and said the man's been crushed under a truck down at a work site just down the road. The next minute you're 
gone from an AFR, um, automatic fire alarm to this guy that's been absolutely destroyed by a truck. You're going, I wasn't expecting... You didn't even have time to process it. And you're going, well, that was different. And, like, the visual and the graphic of that is something I live with every day. But... And I, you can't erase it. I wish I could. Well, by the time I got to 30 fatalities, that's when I started sort of having problems um, because I wasn't processing those fatalities. So there's a lot of high-speed motor vehicle accidents as well as a lot of, uh, you know, death and fire, people in burning buildings. So there's a lot of things that I've seen and done that I don't particularly want to remember. Professionally, me dealing with those sort of events would be putting a mask on so people wouldn't really know what I was thinking and feeling because I had to... And it was probably detrimental to my, my own well-being that I had to lead by example with people um, and not show that I was cracking and showing that what I'm witnessing is disturbing. And that was the prop, that was the culture in the time, that you wouldn't show any cracks. You know, it was the harden up buttercup, have a cup of concrete attitude that the service put on you as well as... It was, well, it was perceived as being a sign of weakness. I mean, a part of it's got to be there. Part of it's got to be that you've got to push through thing and that it's it's a it's a difficult thing to try and sort of have in concept and in the culture but not have it if you know what I mean it's like to say someone you've got to you know shut down turn off just do the job smile there with a stone face don't do anything um, and you don't want anyone to you don't want people to be like little daisies there and going that's so sad You've got to have some sort of toughened aspect of it to do what you've got to do. But I was saying, taken, it's like you've got to you've got to switch on and you've got to switch off. That's the big thing. And most people don't, you know. When you get issues like PTSD, you're switched on all the time. And how do you switch it back off? So you've got, you know, you go to work and you've got to be professional. You've got to be stone-faced, get the job done, push through it, write the report, then you go home and your partner's going, I want a hug and a cuddle and can you play with the kids and move the lawns and that's the last thing you want to do because you're switched on still. And the other aspect of it is if you go out and people say, oh, what do you do for a job? Not knowing who you are. And you say, oh, I'm a police, fire, police officer, fire officer, ambulance officer. People are going, you know, oh, that must be an amazing job. Or you usually get, you usually get the question... Geez, you must see some bad stuff. And it's like people are fishing for you to tell them war stories, but then they don't realise that how they're activating you. And just and you think, I don't want to be rude, so I'll tell you a story, but then you walk away, they're going, oh, now I'm sort of not in that mood I was when I walked in the door half an hour earlier. For the first responder, it isn't just an income. I mean, it becomes part of their life. It becomes part of their identity. And everyone presumes that, oh, that must be lovely to have a fire or a paramedic or a cop for, as a partner. And you go, there's so many negatives to it. So they get, you know, unexpected call-outs. You might have prepared, you might planned a party or a special birthday and... Yeah, nine times out of ten, they'll be the call and off they go. And that and, and that's okay for them because they're busy. But the partner's kind of left with all that organising and all the explaining and, and people may be upset or offended that, you know, they weren't there. Um, so it's a lot of extra pressure. And so some of this tension at times between who's more important, your job or your family? So my... Other officer at the fire station and I decided we'd have a family sort of day just to bond the families to get together and have a bit of fun, you know, soccer match, running races, 
um, and all those sort of things. And we'd gone to a local park to have a barbecue. We got there and two girls within the group went to the to the creek to have a look at the creek and wild and came screaming over the top of the hill and they'd found a deceased. So it really rattled us because I'm distinctly looking at my, my other officer mate and going, I can't believe this. This is crazy. We can't even have a day off without death being around us. In the early days of being with with Ross, I was really, really lucky compared to other partners because I actually spent a year going out with them taking photos. And so I did get to understand the adrenaline rush of the pager going off um, and the excitement and the camaraderie that happens during and after incidents. I could see all that. The other part of what I got to see was um, how, how they all communicated with one another and that they were all okay. And it wasn't often talked about that they might not be okay. In 2009, after a, a really nasty incident involving three deceased in a motor vehicle accident, followed five weeks later by two deceased in a motor vehicle accident, that's when I started having sleep problems. So I was reliving a lot of the stuff that I'd seen and done in the last, in those days, uh, 10 years, um, reliving those in nightmares, waking up in cold sweats, um, having flashbacks during the day. Um, often, most nights I wouldn't sleep really well. It was broken sleep. So that's when I started having problems. And I thought I was just alone. I didn't think it was anyone else would have the same problems that I was having. Part of my release from the fire brigade and the work that I was seeing doing, I got into photography as it was sort of an escapism that um, out photographing um, bands, musicians, which is the industry we got into. But my love was outside with abandoned buildings and cars. Um, but the trouble that I started to have was every time I was taking a photograph of the music gig, I'd have an image of a deceased in the lens of my camera to the point of I had to put my camera down and I couldn't concentrate and I had to deal with what the image that brought up to me and my camera and trying to process it. But at the times in the music industry, it's hard. You're only there for a short period of time to get the photos, so it's hard to, to process the image you've had in your lens to then continue taking photographs of something totally not related to what you're trying to deal with. It was a really difficult time. To the point I haven't picked a camera up now for five or six years. Triggers can come out of nowhere um, and triggers were not something I was particularly familiar with in the early days of him starting to show weird behaviours. My partner, Veronique, or Ronnie as we call her, she was the person that, that sort of pushed me in to start seeking help because she said my behaviour's not right. I was sort of um, appeasing her by going along to see to see someone, thinking I was handling things all right and it wasn't me the problem, it was the rest of the world. So she pushed me and took me along, dragged me screaming and kicking to a, a psychologist and he tried to work through things but because I didn't really click with him, it wasn't really helpful and it was basically me just ticking a box by saying to Ronnie, well, I've seen a psychologist so I must be getting better, I'm doing the right thing. Which, which I wasn't at the time. There was a lot of emotional stuff going on at his station. The captain that was there suddenly left and basically left the station to run themselves, which meant Ross and one of the other guys were in charge. Not something they were prepared for. There'd been no handover. Yeah, but look, over, over a couple of years, Ross became more and more angry and I think most first, most partners who have a first responder, first responder with PTSD in their life, there's a similar pattern with all of them, that the person closest to them will cop it, whatever that frustration is, 
because they don't understand what's going on in themselves and they have to lay blame somewhere. Um, it was always Ross leaving me. I was really determined that I would somehow get him the right help. By this stage, I thought, this is definitely post-traumatic stress disorder. And in the times that he left, which was anywhere between 24 hours and a month, I'd read and talk to colleagues and go onto online forums. And then most of the messages I got back was, it's your relationship. If you're triggered by something, you had a bad day at work and you don't cut it off and you come home and it's dragged over when you get home because of the expectations placed upon you by your family, um, it's massive. If you can't switch it off, and that was the problem that I had, but I was always triggered all the time. Driving home, you know, from driving here to the shops would normally take me two or three minutes to get milk and bread, but I, because I avoided certain roads and certain streets, it might take me half an hour. And people don't realise that. People don't realise, why do you go that way? Because I don't want to go past where that house fire was or that car accident was. Um, and it's the way, that's the things that people don't understand, how it impacts your own life, you know, or you don't buy a certain... I've got friends of mine that won't buy certain vehicles because they've seen them destroyed in accidents. And it's like, then how do you take that home to your wife who says, or your husband that says, I really want to buy a brand new Ranger because they're awesome? And you go, no. So you just cut off that sort of stuff. And I said earlier, the chicken industry wouldn't be making a profit from me at all because I just donate that sort of stuff. But, you know, the hardest part is to be to be switching off. What's And with what happened with me is I didn't have that escape. I didn't have that photography. I didn't have that um, hobby outside the fire brigade. So it was basically the fire brigade was my life. But it was also basically took my life away. I, at times, was, was trying to orchestrate my own um, death by suicide, by orchestrating a situation at a house fire, maybe, or on the freeway, and then I'd be looked upon as a hero, not a, not a um, person that's taken their life to suicide. It sounds strange, but um, that's what was in my head at the time. But I actually got to the point where I'd just sit there crying and going, well, I can't do anything, because in, in that frame of mind, it, he wasn't rational. And so even when he would say something irrational and I would try and be very calm and do my social worky or girly thing, whatever it is, and try and talk it out. He would say, that piece of paper there is black and I could say that piece of paper is actually white and he'd get angry because in his mind it was black. That, that's kind of what it was like. And the more that I would try to, to push the rational side of things, the more irrational he would become. So again, Ronnie and I had had a, a big argument. I was leaving. I was done. So I went to Lightning Ridge. It took me 16 hours. I left home on the central coast and drove for hours. I, you know, I was driving up the freeway and I thought, I'll just drive to Cessnock. Then I, at Cessnock, I'll just drive to Armadale. I'll just drive to Tamworth. I'll just drive and spent 16 hours zigzagging all the way towards Lightning Ridge. Um, and when I got to Lightning Ridge, I'd sat there and go, oh, I'm at Lightning Ridge. Now what? And I was in the, I was in the mind space that I was, that was it. I was going to take my life. I just couldn't do this anymore. 
through connecting with others, we can hold on to hope. To speak to a crisis supporter, please call 13 11 14, 24 hours, seven days a week. And fortunately, um, a friend of mine phoned me. Um, the, conversa- the conversation I had with him at the time, the phone had rung and, and he and I have always had a code that if either, either of us ring each other, we answer the phone. There's not many people in my not many people in my life I have that code with, but he and I like that. Um, so he rang up and said, "What do you do?" I still to this day don't know whether he had spoken to Ronnie. He wouldn't tell me, but he phoned me up and and um, said, "What are you doing?" So I'm at Lightning Ridge. What are you doing there? I oh, don't need to worry about it. And he goes, "What are you doing at Lightning Ridge?" I said, oh, "I've just had enough." He said, what do you mean you've had enough? And, and he kept prodding me and pushing me and said, you're not contemplating taking your life or, you know, topping yourself with his words. I know I'm not supposed to say that, but that was his words. And I said, yeah, I am actually. And he goes, no, you're bloody not. And he said, um, I'll ring you back in five minutes. Um, one of my mates is up there and you can go and have a cup of tea with him. So, and because he gave me that reassurance, that was the, okay, no worries. And because I respected him for the person that he is. So I sat there and waited for the phone call within exactly five minutes to the dot. Again, like that brochure, tick, there was a phone call. And he'd arranged it within five minutes. And he did, you know, the classic textbook suicide prevention <laughs> interaction handbook. He did it to a T without, and he's never had that training at all. But he just said, you know, he reassured me that, you know, I've, I was valued in his life, tick, um, that he was concerned about me, tick, and then to not go anywhere, he'll find out if a friend of his was in Lightning Ridge at the time and I can go and have a cup of coffee with him, tick. He did it all. He did the classic diversion therapy and I didn't even realise. Ross took two weeks holiday, then returned to work. Desperate to help, Ronnie, who's a social welfare worker, continued trying to find him proper support. Finally, she got lucky. And a friend suggested a um, a female doctor because I was looking, by coincidence, for a new doctor who happened to be a female, um, whose husband happened to be a PTSD expert in New Zealand with army and police, and uh, he came out of semi-retirement to see Ross and they treated us like a team. And so we made the agreement that... I was able to tell her whatever had been going on and Ross gave her permission then to pass that on to her husband. That, like, how lucky could we be to find a team like that? And to this day, Ross will say they saved his life, they saved our relationship. Um, yeah, incredible. And it was a team effort that actually made it successful. And that didn't mean that instantly things were fine. They weren't. It still took a few more years and it'll never be perfect. Ross has post-traumatic stress disorder. I personally don't believe it's cured. I believe it's managed and can be managed really, really well. And 99% of the time he does that. It's really hard. There's people that say they know about PTSD, but to actually understand PTSD in emergency services or the military is a big thing. But yeah, they saved my life. And his first words to me when I saw him in his psychology role um, was, I don't need to know what you've seen and done. I've done it myself. So I was like, oh, really? Now I can't sort of manipulate it because in my favour because he knows what I've seen and done. He gets it, which is a big, t- big, which is a big thing. Someone getting it, um, and some of the, the 
techniques that he taught me was just invaluable to the point I've, I've passed them on to many people because of his insight into what ha- what goes through with repeated exposure to trauma. And, you know, in a first responder, you can't be out on the, on the roadway as assisting, you know, someone who's, whose wife or husband's been tragically killed and lose it yourself, you can't. you just got to stick to her going, it's okay, they've just taken them to hospital, he'll be fine or she'll be fine, which is a big, which is to take that on board personally, to know that you're actually lying to someone um, is another aspect. All this time I was still working, so I was focused on the fire brigade role, um, focused on my instructor, I was that, that guy, if someone asked, do you want to go to Sydney to work with, yep, do you want to go hit, yep, do you want to go to the fire station off, on your day off because, this, yep, I was that guy. So I continued to do the work despite my, psych- my good psychologist, we'll call him, telling me, you need to give this up, this is going to kill you. Um, and he was to the, and to the point of he was pretty he was pretty matter of fact with it. He wasn't glossing it over. If you continue to do this, you will die. Ross always felt that when he did leave the fire brigade, it had to be on his own terms. And in 2013, after spending 21 hours non-stop fighting the Red October fires, he realised it was time to save himself. I didn't believe him. I mean, he was at a major major fire, and he rang me up. And he said, "I'm done." I said, oh, you're finished, like a shift. No, I'm done. I've just decided that's it. I'm not doing anymore. And I'm going to cry again. I didn't believe him because to me that would have been too good to be true. There was no sadness in that for me whatsoever because I knew it had hurt him so much and him staying there was just making him worse. Um... Yeah, and then he came home and he said, no, I really am, I'm serious. So I'm going, no, you know, I don't believe it. I had been disappointed so many times over, you know, the two and a half, three, four years, however long it was by that stage. Um, but, yeah, then when it finally sunk in, it was like, it was the biggest sense of relief. So in 2013, I put my hand up for help. And that's when I decided that I'd had enough. So I decided to go and work as comp for three months and do some naval gazing. Was this the right decision for, for me, as in Ross? Um, was it the right decision financially? Was it all that? Making sure it's the right decision as well as realising that I can't return again. Um, so Ronnie and I had sat down and actually she'd gone for a job interview in Newcastle. And she said, if someone wanted, if you wanted someone to tell you something when you joined the fire brigade about how to look after yourself mentally um, and spiritually, whatever, what would it be? So I, she had an interview for about two hours. So I had a pad and pen and sat there and wrote what I thought I should have been told, you know, about PTSD, about incident stress and all that sort of stuff. So when she came out for the interview, she goes, that's really cool. And she's the person that sort of makes something from, you know, make something from nothing. I had a bit of an idea. She sort of put it together and we basically put a thing together that, that wasn't I wasn't taught. And it's basically telling people in the first responder world, don't do what I did and avoid signs of incident stress or your own personal mental health. Together, Ronnie and Roscoe devised Behind the Scene, a program to help all the other first responders dealing with stress. Yeah, and we just ran a trial little session with 18 people up at Cameron Park. They all loved it and we're just sitting there going, okay. So there's something about the way that Ross 
frames everything in this really simple way, um, that resonated and Behind the Scene was born. Um, it was just a discussion with Ronnie and I and I came up with the name Behind the Scene and Ronnie's brother, who was in advertising, said that's a really stupid name. <laughs> he goes, because people will challenge you and say Behind the Scene, it should be S-C-E-N-E. And I'm going, no, it's S-E-E-N because it's what I've seen, looked at, visualised, witnessed. And he sort of got it eventually. Um, and even when we first put it up on Facebook, this is what we're going to do, we had people saying, you spelt it wrong. I said, no, I haven't spelt it wrong. So there's an education process with it as well. But we put up, we put these sessions together that Ronnie thought, we need to, how can we do this? Um, and she's a creative and I'm a creative. So we had handout gifts of a, a pen that looks like a syringe that we used to say that to people, take this home. Um, it's a reminder that we're not immunised and vaccinated to stress. We've got stress balls because we need which bouncy balls, like super balls, which is to tell people that you've got to be able to bounce back. You've got to do what you to do what you do. You've got to be able to bounce back out of it. People embraced it really quickly, and word spread. So then we got funding to do um, rural fire service stations on the central coast, and we just about did ninety percent of them all in three months. Just going out there on their the training nights and saying this is a an hour presentation about looking after yourself. And um, you know, you think some things, you know, that won't work, but it actually did. It went bang, worked really well. And it continues to work really well. Fire station, rescue station, police station, ambulance, doesn't matter where we go. Anyone that's in the red and blue light community, our presentation is about 45 minutes where we just go through a few things, you know, basically exposing, you know, I know what you know and I know what I do what you do. I avoid certain streets, I have triggers. This is all the stuff that I used to do and I bet you all do it. And everyone sits there nodding their heads going, yeah, that's me, that's me, that's me. Ronnie speaks on behalf of the family members who then see their first responders cracking and they're the ones that sort of can see us unravelling before anybody else. Um, So she exposes that part of it. This is what you guys and girls are doing to your partners and your family members. So it's basically just laying all the cards on the table. But doing it in not a... a, a, um, sort of heavy way because originally when we first start the sessions people sit there very stiff-lipped and upper you know very standing like this with their mouth shut but when you hand out the pen and go this is your pen to signify you're immunized and vaccinated people just relax and go oh, i get this this is going to be all right this is not going to be death by powerpoint or or someone you know ramming something down my throat and it's because because of the way it's presented we get away with it Originally, when I first started doing behind the scene, that um, I was telling war stories and dragging up some of my past. And I spoke to my psychologist at the time because I was actually paying for what I'd said and done to people. Um, and he taught me another another lesson to when I'm telling my stories, just to draw on different scenarios and different incidents and make it into one. You know, use it. You know, if it was a green car, make it a red car. If it was a four-door car, make it a ute. If it was a caravan, make it a pop-top caravan. Just changing certain aspects of it, but with the same outcome, um, whether it be a serious incident or fatality. But it, that way, it's not drawing on my portfolio of pictures. So that sort of helped me to get through it. So the, the ultimate telling the story. Is I find it's important for someone else to then go, you know what, because I've heard your story, that I've changed my direction and my thought processes and I've actually gone to get help. 
And so I think, take, I think I've done my job. One of Ronnie and Ross's smartest innovations is a stress kit. Neither of us are really all that happy with the term mental illness or mental health because of the stigma. And so we're trying to come up with other words. And and the word that resonates with absolutely everybody is stress. You're feeling stress or you're feeling out of sorts, you're stressed. And someone know Ross just did the bushfire um, dial and made it like a stress meter. So they could just leave the stress meter on the fridge it's just it's a chart that actually says if you're in a low stress state this is probably what's going on with you if you're in a medium stress state these are some of the um, things that you might be feeling and down the bottom it's actually got some suggestions for help they've got conversation cards in them as well with all sorts of questions that just encourage people to talk about their stress levels and how different people might deal with stress in different ways um For one person it might be, I'm going to go read a book, but for the other person it might be, I need to go for a walk and get rid of some energy. And just getting colleagues at station level to get to know each other that little bit better. And then they might be able to pick up too if someone's not quite themselves because they'll end up talking about that sort of stuff. One of the things we do in our sessions is to get the participants to establish their own triple O. So right down on, we've got, you know, there's a little poster write two friends, two workmates um, and two family members that understand you and people that you can go to when if you have a problem, if you say I'm having a bad day, that they get it and they know what to do just by either speaking on the phone or just saying, look, I'll come over or how about we do something, let's catch up, let's have a coffee or just sit on the phone and spend some time. Again, back to that suicide um, helper's handbook of just been the ear that someone can listen to come and bash your ear and talk to about it you know they don't have to offer you advice at all they can just be there and you think oh it's a cool we had a great conversation the best of the best advice i can give someone that is in that dark space is put your hand up um and go and get that help you know even it's if it's begrudgingly like oh, i did it was you know when i originally went and put my hand up and was dragged along to the psychologist it was first the first step um, of taking ownership of my injury, of my behaviours, of my situation. Um, and I find it's an integral part. You've got to take ownership of your own injury. You can't rely on others to solve it for you. You've got to take it on board of what's being said and done for you. Um, and to get to move forward, you need to, to know that this is for you and you need to do this. Um, you need to call on the experts that, that understand what you you go through and people like I found that they call you out they go I bet you do this you go oh yeah I do I bet you don't sleep at night and, yeah I don't I bet you <laughs> and it's that so that aspect of and you and you've got to be honest with people going yeah that's right that, that's what I do and not have that toughen up culture like we just spoke about and just let the wall down the best thing about help and seeking help and taking that help is if you're at the beach at Bondi and the surf lifesavers were sitting on the beach with their their surfboards and not skidoos because that's snow, but there with their with their jet skis and the Westpac rescue helicopters there and the New South Wales police and the ambulance and everybody's there watching you have a swim and you're having a great time. But if you get in trouble, caught in a rip, they don't know you're in trouble until you put your hand up. You've got to put your hand up for them to go, oh, that guy's in trouble. Unless they can, some you know, they're pretty switched on the surf lifesavers they know someone's in strife but it, if once that hand's raised that's a sign that there's 
problems going on and I need some help. And you've got to accept that help. But all around, he has a lot of feelings of achievement. Every time I get a message where somebody says, you saved my life, I look at that and go, I, I just can't believe that we're doing this. Like if we've saved one person's life, that's enough. And I know for a fact that we've saved more than that. And, and if that's happening at that level, um, you know, even the recruits that would never have thought about some of this information may never recognise that something has saved their life, but it will. Thank you for listening to Holding On To Hope. Lifeline Australia is grateful to all our interviewees who share their stories in the hope of inspiring others. We also acknowledge all of you who provide support to people in crisis and those on their journey to recovery. If you found this podcast helpful or inspiring, please share it, rate it, write a review or subscribe wherever you download your favourite podcasts. If this story has affected you and you require crisis support, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. You can do this at any time or visit lifeline.org.au to access web chat every night from 7pm to midnight. If it's inspired you to be a Lifeline volunteer or to donate, please visit lifeline.org.au. With thanks to Wahoo Creative for interviews, editing and production and the voice of lived experience, which is essential in the development of our work. Mm-hmm.